On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Philip Kearney, lecturer and lead in the Masters in Applied Sports Coaching in the University of Limerick. During the show, he talks about the power of questioning and the importance of planning what you want to achieve from your questions, the benefits of good observation, and gives us some tips on how to build your coach's toolkit. As always, thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Okay, delighted to welcome Dr. Philip Kearney to this week's show. Phil, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, there's loads I want to discuss with you. I've been looking to get you on for a while. Um, I'd like to start with coach development, if that's okay with you. So I know you're a fellow of the Higher Education Authority and committed to excellence and innovation in teaching. How does that feed into your interest in coach development and what are the sort of the synergies there? If we might start off there, if that's cool. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a nice question, actually. Um, there's quite a lot of synergies. Um, the, the big one is in terms of, you know, some of the ideas around uh, teaching philosophy, some of the things that I did on my, um, when I was doing the, the learning and teaching in higher education qualification really got me thinking around philosophy and opened my door to some ideas in education that then got me thinking about, well, how do these apply across into to coaching? And I think there's there's an awful lot of of scope for different disciplines to work backwards and forwards. I think um, we talk a lot about coaching borrowing from other disciplines, but I think it's also fair to say that other disciplines can borrow a lot from coaching. We see that a lot in terms of, of business, for instance, where they you know they, they look at what people are doing in the sport domain, particularly the high performance sport domain, and try and borrow ideas from there. Um, but I'd say that you know the the, the ideas around you know what, what what are you trying to achieve? What are your beliefs about the best way of doing this? Uh, and then looking at your practice to see if if your practice is is consistent with those beliefs. Um, you know that those ideas came very strongly from what I was looking at in terms of teaching, and, and um, I kind of made that a centerpiece now in terms of the coaching work and the coach development work that I do. So even though the, the idea around a coaching philosophy and the term around a coaching philosophy, for instance might be a little bit a bit of a strange term for lots of people um i think it's really worthwhile getting stuck into and understanding how this can be a really powerful guide and a really powerful support for people when they're coaching yeah so that's really interesting what you're saying so i suppose we've talked to loads of people on the show and we talk about coaching the science of coaching let's say being quite a young discipline but let's say teaching or, or pedagogy would be i suppose uh, a lot more established so do you find that that's becoming more and more that the the two of them are becoming more and more linked as in are they more or less the same thing or are you finding that there's still a long way to go in terms of the coaching literature to catch up on where it should be um yeah that's quite nice i think i think that for anybody looking into to coaching science work you know i, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to go dig into what's been done in education because education physical education has been a profession for a long time and as a profession they've they've thought about thought about um quite a lot of issues that are relevant to coaching and so it can ask, act as a really good guide um and so things like questioning, for instance, a few years ago, I had a, a whole series of master's projects that, that came along and they were all very interested in, in how you use questioning more, more efficiently and effectively. And a lot of the literature we drew on at that stage came from, uh, came from education, came from research observing teachers in classrooms. 
whereas I think it's starting to, to change. So I think there's the quality of what's being done in, in coaching research is fantastic at the moment. There's, there's been you know, some really excellent research, which is very practical, very applied. Um, and in terms of questioning, there's a lovely paper by, by Ed Cope and colleagues. And all they did was they went along and they listened to the questions that, that um, it was English Soccer Academy coaches were, were using. They listened to, to the, the nature of the interactions, the back and forth between coach and players, and they just analyzed what was happening there. And for me, that analysis is as advanced as anything that you'll see in the education literature. And so I think now some of the education literature could take ideas from what was done in that kind of paper. So uh, you're right that there's, you know, it's, it's a, a relatively young discipline, but I also think that there's, you know, there's some really excellent practice happening and, it's one of the things I, I particularly enjoy um, looking at research and getting inspired by what's happening in the research because it's so practical. There are These are things that make me question my practice, that make me question, okay, what am I going to go and experiment with to evolve and develop my practice? Okay, so I have two questions on the, on that. Uh, first one, um, what did uh, I want to know what the, in that paper, what did they find about those interactions and what type of interactions were the most effective? And I suppose as a follow on from the previous question, then it, why I suppose is the coaching literature uh, or why is coaching as a as a science? Um, I suppose, why is it so rich in knowledge or why could it has the, the potential to be so rich in knowledge? Is it because of the sort of the chaotic atmosphere that people will be in, in particularly in a team setting or in a one to one dynamic or whatever it may be? I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Sorry, I just realized that I'm after overloading you with questions there. So we might, <laughs> we might go with yeah, the first so one I, first in terms of what, what did they find in the interactions? I'll actually try and break that up a little bit because I'll, I'll actually go the other way around. It's, it's slightly easier, but you, you definitely chucked a whole lot at me there. Um, in terms of what, what's so attractive about coaching, I think it's the diversity within coaching. So I think it's the diversity of formats that you find. So you talk about team and individual and one-to-one -one. Um, I think, you know, that the nature of different sports acts as constraints. I think adventure sport, you know, the, the, the distinction between adventure sport and competitive sport. Um, I know we'll probably get to this at the end, but in terms of a tip for any, uh, any sports coach, any competitive sports coach, uh, for me would be to, to go and learn more about adventure sports coaching. This is a very different world with a very different set of, of objectives. Um, and I think that that different world encourages the development of more sophisticated coaches because you have to be a more sophisticated coach to deal with the constraints that surround you within the adventure sport context. Um, and so I think to, to answer your question, why, why, can, why is sports coaching such a, a powerful domain for learning about human interactions and, and effective uh, human interactions and, and developing human beings? Um, I think it is because of the diversity of situations that we experience and that we can we can compare, contrast, and learn from. So that hopefully answers your your, your second part. Um, and then in terms of this really specific study by Cope, um, I'll, I'll focus on just a couple of the findings that I think are, are probably most relevant. Um, the first one is that, as happens quite a lot, coaches weren't very aware of what they were doing. So their awareness wasn't great and, and there's straight away a lesson there for any coach which is to you know uh stick your your microphone that's on your phone uh on just clip it onto your your coat lapel 
take a walk around, record yourself in your session. Uh, there's probably somebody screaming at me about GDPR at the moment, but record your session, record your instructions, record your questions and listen back to it and, and just see, do you match up with what you think you match up with? Um, and that's a really important, powerful starting point. So what am I actually doing? How aware am I of how I act, how I interact within coaching? So that was part one of what they found. Uh, and the other part then was around the nature of the questioning. And they looked really, really closely at the back and forth in the questions. So they looked at things like, you know, who asked the question? And the majority of the time, it's the coaches asking the question. There are very little questions being elicited from the athletes. So is that what you want in your coaching session? And if it's not, well, what are you going to do about it? Um, there were other things like the timing. So the coach would ask a question and there would be silence. And, you know, any, anybody who's done any, any teaching, uh, you know, is, is familiar with how long seconds become when you throw out a question and you don't get a response back. And so, you know, teachers are trained how to deal with those situations. And, and these coaches didn't deal with them very well because they would jump in very quickly. They would try and, and if they weren't getting an immediate response, then they would either reframe the question or they'd ask the question again or they'd prompt people in some other way. And so, again, the, the idea here is that coaches are asking questions to get the athletes to think. But when you, when you read the nature of the to and fro interactions, when you read the actual words they say, or if you're a coach, you're listening back yourself to what you've recorded, you see that you're actually shutting down opportunities for the learner to, to think for themselves by the nature of the questions that you're asking. And so it kind of opens the question as to, well, what does skillful questioning look like? Um, and uh, again, it's, it's something that you, know, you see an awful lot when you, when you work with coaches, when you observe coaches, you know, um, you ask a question, there, there isn't an immediate response, what do you do about it? Well, the obvious one is to say, okay, go play the game, go do the activity, and then come back to me and tell the answer. You know, I don't need an answer to the question now, but how can I encourage you to, to, to go and figure out the answer before coming back and answering it? It doesn't need to be a, a straight answer. So that was another kind of a big thing that came out of the study. I don't know if that's... Yeah, kind of so the, yeah, that's fascinating because I suppose uh, we've talked, I don't know, hundreds of times uh, before about uh, questioning being a powerful tool and the use of questioning being really, really beneficial to your coaching uh it, whether it be an individual or a team but i suppose it, it, you're probably the first to talk about how you use that question questioning and and the deliberate thought that goes into those questions so you mentioned that uh people were using questions that were closing off opportunities to for learning and for for, for athletes to feedback can you give me some examples or, or, or some sort of type of those questions because i think Maybe some people get a little bit caught up on, okay, I asked loads of questions in that session, but if they're not asking the right things or if they're asking in the wrong way, as you mentioned, maybe that's detrimental to their coach. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and give a couple of examples, but what I might do is, is take a step back first because I think, again, there's an important uh, general point here to make, which is about, you know, it's sophisticated use of questions. Um, because I think that sometimes we get caught up in, a, in trying to oversimplify things. We try and give some pe people some very simple advice. So uh, occasionally you might come across open questions are good, closed questions are bad. Um, 
and again, the, the idea behind there is sensible. The idea behind that is that open questions encourage you to think, to be creative, to come up with different options, to, to look and engage with the world around you and come up with solutions to what you see. Whereas closed questions, you're being led down one particular avenue and, and we're, we're closing off opportunities for autonomy, opportunities for creativity. So the broad principle there is fine. But is there never a place for a closed question? You know, again, I think we need to think about, well, what, what are we trying to achieve with the question? So if you walk into a group and it's a relatively new group and you want them to start interacting with you, um, but they're a bit shy about it, they don't know you very well, well, potentially some rapid, quick-fire, closed questions that are short, that are easy, just get people talking and comfortable talking and, and feeling safe in that, and that eases you into um, the opportunity to use some, some broader, some more open questions which are, you know, okay, so, so you know, what, what are we seeing? What's the problem here? Why, why can't we score? Or why are they scoring so easily? What's, what's happening? Those are big questions. Those are open questions. Those are questions that, you know, the players that you're working with potentially can, can give you their perspective, things that you might not see because, well, you're a coach on the sideline, so you're not as aware of the, the, the world they're immediately interacting with. And so giving them the opportunity to, to answer well, this is my world, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm thinking. You know, that's a really important information gathering period. And it's really important to, to listen to the answers that are coming there and consider the answers that are coming there. And as a coach, to, to buy yourself time to listen to and consider the answers uh, within the course of your session. So you don't have to give an immediate answer back because you can say, okay, that's great. Now I'm getting this. Right, what are you going to try next? Go play another bit of the game. And while they're playing the next bit of the game, you're thinking, right, what do I do with that information that they've just given me? How do I help them to work on that if they need help, if they haven't solved it themselves by engaging back in the game? Yeah, no, I think that's that's really, really powerful tool that you just described there. And, and the fact that the amount of thought that you've put into how you ask the question, where you ask the question, how familiar you are with the group. And I suppose it's something that we don't talk enough about. We talk about the use of questioning, but we maybe don't say, look, if you're very familiar with the group, it's okay to maybe go to that more advanced level. Whereas if you're not, as you said, start with the closed questions. Do you think then that Phil, for someone listening now, is that something that anyone can start developing very quickly? Can they start, um, bringing it in slowly into their sessions and what sort of benefits would they be hoping to see from it? Yeah. So, um, I think it's something that, yeah, you, you can, you can, uh, do very quickly, especially if you, you find yourself a friend who's willing to, to have a, keep an eye on your coaching session with you and just listen to what you're doing and give you some feedback as to what you're doing. Um, or, or if you haven't got that, that access, um, then to, to listen back to recording so that, that, that opens the gate very, very quickly. Um, I think it's very important when you do that to, to pay attention to, to how the athletes respond. Um, because, you know, I, I've had, you know, I had a couple of sessions over the summer with uh, just helping out and, and covering some sessions with some new athletes. And, you know, the, 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 the general response has been, you know, I never had so many questions uh, ever thrown at me in the course of a session. <laughs> so again, you've got to try and, and manage that so you're not overwhelming people. Um, but the, the, 
the more important point, the more general point I'm going to make is that it's really important to get out there and experiment and try it because, you know, you're, you're, no one does everything right. Um, but if you want to evolve as a coach, then you need to be doing different things. You need to be experimenting. You need to be trying things out. Um, and so I would, I would urge anyone who's thinking, you know what, I want to, I want to play with something in my practice. Then do play with, play with different types of questions. Play with different words. Play with words you're allowed to use and not allowed to use, um, and see how you, how you manage to do that within your practice. And I think that that idea of how are we playing with our practice is a really key part of how we, we continue to develop and learn as a coach. And you can, you know, you can, you can focus on one particular part of your sessions, one particular part of your practice. And let's say it is, it is questioning, you know, it, it, it gives you a little bit of safety because you're keeping the usual structure and everything else. But then every single training session you do for the next month, is not just a training session for the athletes, it's a practice session, it's a learning session for you as a coach with respect to how you use questioning in this case. So I think it's how you, how you build in your continuous development into your, your training sessions so that it's not something that you do outside or additional to your coaching, it's something that's built into your coaching. Yeah, okay. No, yeah, and I, I fully agree, I think, um... I suppose it's the thought that you're putting into your questions and maybe the preparation and the planning that you need to to put in beforehand the same way as we plan a drill or a, an activity to work on a certain skill uh, and we plan what we're doing and maybe the progressions of that drill or that activity um, but if we're also putting that same amount of preparation into what questions we're asking and what outcome we want to achieve from it that can turn it into that really really powerful tool um, Absolutely, and that's a, and that's a great point. And again, that's not, you know, that's not rocket science, and that's not a very difficult thing to do. That's you know, taking another an extra few minutes as you're planning your session when you look at the activity and you say, okay, so what kind of questions might I ask here? What kind of questions might I might I use? Um, I'm, you know, for for preparing in terms of either teaching or coaching sessions, I would use imagery quite a lot. So I would imagine the session as it plays through and I'd play it through in my mind before I go to do the session. Um, and in doing that, I'd play around with, you know, what kind of questions might I ask and what kind of, of responses would I get and how would I respond to those kind of questions or, um, or those kind of responses, sorry. So I think, you know, that, that what you say there about planning for questioning um, is definitely a really important part of, of making this work as well. Yeah, no, that, that's the beauty of it. The way you just explained it, I think, is um, is a potentially really, really easy way for anyone out there that's coaching at any level to to add to their sessions in terms of their planning and preparation. Um, I want to change tack just a small bit, uh, Phil. Uh, you mentioned observation earlier on in terms of the power uh, that it can give. Uh, you, you, you talked about it in a classroom setting. But I want to talk about, um, I know, a, another area that you're very interested in is skill acquisition. And so how does that um, that observation help you in terms of helping develop a, an athlete in terms of their skill acquisition? And then how does that skill acquisition develop that, that athlete or, or help with that athlete development going forward? Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the first point I'll say in terms of... of observation is that you know it's this incredibly important tool within your coaching toolbox and a lot of the time when we see depictions of, of a coaching toolbox 
we see all the different interventions that a coach might use. We see different ways of providing instruction, whether it's visual instructions or verbal instructions, or you know, if we're talking about different types of instructions, is it internal or external focus instructions, or um, we talk about different types of practice that you might design. So a lot of the time when we talk about coaching toolbox, there's this big emphasis on the intervention. And I think there needs to be a little bit more attention paid in the first case to the observation, to actually pausing and skillfully observing. Now, part of that is covered with, you know, where do you observe and how do you observe? And is it, is it you know, looking? Is it listening? Is it asking? So all those kind of things are, are really important. Um, but also in terms of, you know, you, you watch the athlete and you say, okay, I think I see what's wrong. That's good. And this actually comes back. <laughs> you're giving me a little flashback now to a, a, cold, a cold night in Mina probably in the early thousands. Um, and I went to do a high jump session with Drew Harrison. So Drew was coaching me and I was, I was doing a bit of high jump at the time. Uh, or Drew wasn't coaching me, Drew was doing a coaching session and I went along to it. And Drew told me, I'm not gonna say anything to you for the next one. He said, cause I need to watch you jump. And once I see what you're doing, I then need to figure out why you're doing what you're doing. And that was a really, you know, it's it's a minor incident, but it's one that I remembered and one that kind of struck with me because I was used to coaches who who intervene quite quickly, who look, who see, who act. Um, and here was Drew, who had his incredible reputation as a coach, and he was saying, "No, no, no! I need to take more time to observe. I need to observe not just what you're doing it, but once I do observe what you're doing, I then need to come up with, okay, well, why might he be doing that? Is it this reason?" Well, what would I see if that's the reason? No, it might not be that. Well, what if it's this reason? What would I see if that's the reason? And that idea about taking more time with observation so that when we do go to intervene, we're more likely to be intervening at, on the right thing, on the problem, not the symptom kind of idea, I think is really, really important. I've kind of lost the, the, the track of the, the question there, but does that make sense no, in no. terms of observation and it's important? Yeah, no, 100%. So like... Yeah, again, you're you're just talking about, uh, I suppose, and again, it's it's easy with experience that you've gone through it a few times, and probably you're knowing the common errors that you might see, particularly for maybe something like a sport like football or or hurling, or maybe, but when you're when you're into um, athletics in terms of the high jump or running or or whatever it may be, I suppose when it gets that bit more technical and that 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 coaching eye i suppose that people call it that just becomes that bit more important in terms of being able to see but i just like the way that he had there in terms of his approaches in he explained what he was going to do and why he was going to do it and then nearly then the questioning would come in then again i suppose to help that guy to discovery that that we talked about earlier on um and i suppose yeah, the, and go sorry go on oh sorry and, and the other bit that that comes in there uh, you know, because you mentioned about, you know, sports like football, sports like um, hurling, sports like athletics. So, so there's a bit of a difference where, you know, it's something like in football and hurling, you know, you've got, you've got to be very adaptable. If we're talking about shooting, you know, you've got to be able to shoot from lots of different speeds, lots of different angles, lots of different body positions. You're compensating. Um, you know, there, 
there have been some fabulous examples. Um, I'm thinking about hurling and football ex- uh, in both codes where you've had people shooting from body positions that you'd never coach, but they're adaptable enough to be able to deliver that. Um, and so I think that's, you know, uh, you don't have quite that same degree of adaptability in something like long jump. You do have adaptability. It's very important that we deliberately coach athletes to be adaptable because you never arrive at the long jump takeoff board in the same position twice. So it's very important that we are coaching that adaptability. Um, But I think what's really important to come back to observation is that we're looking at this and saying, okay, this person is doing something a bit differently. Is it because they're solving the problem in a different way and it's a reasonable solution to the problem? And it's just a style thing that I'm seeing that's different, so it's not that important. Or is there something fundamental here? Are they violating some one of the, the laws of physics, which we, we have to obey if we want to be effective? Um, and I think that, again, taking time in the observation to understand, is this something that, that is a style factor and therefore not so important? Or is this a fundamental issue? which will catch somebody out in a certain stage or longer down the line, and that I do need to, to intervene specifically in. So I think that's, again, where this, this, this careful, um, prolonged observation is really important. Yeah, and I suppose, that's, I suppose that's why I linked the observation and the skill acquisition in the first place. So I know, um, you know, like fundamental movement skills and that sort of um, area is, is, is close to my heart, as you know, and in terms of that skill acquisition we're observing and we're we're trying to develop that as best we possibly can okay but how do you find then that it, i suppose how does that go into athlete development so you talked about there your high jump and potentially a limited adaptability there but in terms of that athlete's development then are we talking that it should be more early specialization at that that stage or how does that fit does do you not do you, do you get what i'm trying to say sorry i butchered that a little bit there <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I'll give you an answer to it because to, um, there's a few points there that, that kind of maybe come together. Um, I think that we need to be very careful um, when it comes to, you know, to, to teaching techniques to athletes. And I'll, I'll, use a, I'll try and use a very specific example here and talk through this. So if we take something like high jump, um, a lot of the time people get taught a run-up in high jump when they're 12, 13 years of age. Um, so this is your, this is your run-up. And the, the, the big issue I have with that is that the athlete is not going to be the same athlete in a year's time or two years' time or three years' time. The athlete's going to change and develop. And so it's very important that we have an athlete who is capable of adapting to the changes that will come about in their body over the course of that time. So how do we develop an adaptable athlete? Um, and the, the, the answer there, I think, is that we, we focus on giving an athlete lots of different challenges, lots of movement challenges. So even though we're gonna try and focus on, on uh, one particular high jump approach for uh, a competition, you know, we want to, to force the athlete to be able to adapt, to be able to run a little bit wider, a little bit narrower, a little bit slower, a little bit faster. So we're constantly providing that, that, that basic level of variability for the athlete to be able to learn to become an adaptable mover from. And that's, that's uh, within a specific skill like high jump. But I think the same principle applies then 
across sports and across skills. And this is where, you know, what, where you're coming from with fundamental movements is if we can, can develop individuals who are skillful movers and adaptable movers, then they will be able to take that skill to whichever sport they find themselves in. And, you know, uh, young people will transition between sports. That's a natural part of, of, uh, of adolescence. Um, so how do we best prepare them for that? What's the, the breadth of movement activities we can give? And I think it's really important that we encourage adaptability and variability in movement when we're doing practices in order to give them that, that skill. Okay, so do you then see that the, so like we talk all the time in terms of early specialization, et cetera, like that, but we definitely, like all the research is telling us that we need to um, to have those the, those broad range of skills and that the, the elite people tend to be those who played loads of different sports, et cetera, when they were children or, or, or up to a certain stage in their teens. So I, I suppose I'm, I'm going on about this again is because you still, still find that people think that their, their little Jimmy or their little Johnny is going to be the next big thing in soccer and or or whatever it may be and and parents will keep them in that sport from a young age and just that sport so do you still do you define that in terms of anywhere you've coached yourself or, or both in terms of your your research as well that that that's not the way to go so uh, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna talk uh, a little bit as as uh, as phil the scientist here because I think it's a it's a really important one, um, and and as a scientist, you know you you've got to be very comfortable saying I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. Um, broadly speaking, what you said is absolutely correct. Broadly speaking, that you know um, there, there's you know uh, the data is there from lots of different sports and within track and fields. I've, I've a lot of the data, a lot of the research is the stuff that I have done, so I'm very familiar with it. You know this this idea around um, individuals who are successful early, they're not individuals who are successful later, and so this this emphasis on early specialization doesn't appear to stack up. However, we we do have to be a little bit careful because it does seem like sometimes the research is or the recommendations are getting ahead of the research a little bit, and I'd be a little bit more confident if we had um, a little bit more research on this particular area. So. For instance, the vast majority of the research on specialization comes from the United States. And the United States has quite a different sporting culture to Ireland. And um, I, I would be very curious, and I don't think there's any data on this, you know. Um, so I would be very curious to find out what exactly Irish youths are doing by way of specialization and multi-sport. Um, from a lot of conversations that I've had in the last couple of years with, with parents in particular, I think there's a, a major risk in Ireland about players trying to play too many sports and train for too many sports during adolescence. So uh, there's a balance to be had like all things. If you concentrate on one sport at six years of age, I absolutely would not recommend that. If you're trying to juggle six sports at a very high level at 16 years of age, likewise, I think you're inviting burnout there and so I think we need to have a look at you know what, what does healthy youth sport look like what does the healthy balance of activity look like and that's a balance across sports certainly and I think 
there's lots of potential benefits from a multi-sport approach, um, not just the, the multiple physical loading, uh, multi-dimensional physical loading that your body gets, but also being exposed to different, different social groups, different social norms, interacting with people in different ways. So I think there's potential for enormous benefits. But I would also say that, you know, I would say it's easier for a coach or a parent to, to encourage healthy youth development through multi-sport. I think that if you have an athlete who is particularly interested in one sport when they are 14, 15, 16 years of age, um, and you have a coach who is still emphasizing general training, so general physical development, um, you know, I, I think, and supplementing that with appropriate kind of recreational and, and informal play type activities, then I think that, that that can be a suitable pathway as well. What we, what we know from the research about elite performers, and, and I don't like concentrating on this because, I'm, to be honest, the, the more I'm involved in sport, the less I'm concerned with elite performance mm -hmm. and the more I'm concerned with personal development. Um, but the research about elite performers is that they take a huge number of different journeys to get there. Um, and some of those journeys are, are very, very late. You know, some people are not ready to specialize. There's some lovely data from, from Diane Huxley down in Australia looking at world and Olympic uh, athletes and saying these individuals were not ready to specialize before uh, 18, 19, 20 years of age. And so you need to listen to the athlete and, and you need to, um, it's very important that we don't try and fit one particular pathway that everybody has to follow because uh, the, the best studies which are looking at the development of athletes just shows this immense diversity of pathways. There are things that we need to avoid and too early specialization, as you said, is problematic. Multi-sport gives us the opportunity to get a lot of benefits for athletes in terms of physical and social development. Um, but a skillful creative coach who's working in general training um, and, and an athlete who's got alternative social uh, avenues, um, they, they, the, the pathway that they take can also be a very healthy pathway. Yeah, I really like the point you made there about the, about balance in terms of, uh, I suppose it's, it's uh, a hot topic, let's say, in, me, in media, stuff like that around early specialization and, and, and the, the doomsday scenario that goes with it. But, but likewise, the, the opposite scenario that you painted there about the child or the, the 16 year old playing five or six different sports and trying to do at a high level can equally be just as detrimental. And I think that's a really good point and probably not something that's not talked about. The other point, sorry, just to, to, just to, to really hit in on that as well. I, th I think, you know, <laughs> sometimes coaches can be a little bit, a little bit cruel to each other. Um, and they, and I saw this all the time. There's some, some very big media uh, stories about this over in the UK where, you know, players would make teams in, in cricket and picking one particular example at a very young age. And instantly the judgment was, oh, the father must have been an absolute nightmare, uh, early specialization, forced training, not allowing them to do anything else. Yes, of course, we see those stories, but actually in this particular case, uh, it wasn't anything like that. It was a very positive um, multi-sport very much informal play, lots of backyard games, 
you know, it was a really good development pathway that this individual had come along. It just happened to, to make it to the England team very early. And so the point I want to make is that, you know, we cannot judge, we cannot detect what someone's journey has been like from their results. We need to be very careful that we're not judging uh, coaches, parents prematurely in terms of, of um, what their journey has been like. Yeah, no, really, really good point. Um, and th- where I want to go with th- this next field is in terms of I know you have an interest in looking at um, does success at, at youth level transfer transfer into success at an adult level, and I think that ties in nicely with what you're saying. And um, uh, Anya McNamara actually has some work on the the rocky road to the top as well, and it talks about similar stuff as in people have different journeys to the top and that they have to deal with setbacks and adversity, et cetera, to get there. Um, so in terms of your own stuff, do you find the, the correlation to that success at youth going into an adult or, or how is it felt? How do you find it? Um, so no is the simple answer. <laughs> okay. uh, the, the, the relationship between youth success, especially uh, at very young levels um, and even later adolescence, adult success, it's it's very, very weak relationship altogether. Um, and and I've studied this within athletics. So 100 meter sprint, how fast are you? It's not complicated. You know, if any sport is going to find this relationship, uh, it's going to be something as, as straightforward as, as athletics, which is all about how fast, how high, how far. So, um no, the, the, the relationship between youth and adult success is, is very low, and that's the case across so many different sports. The research is, is really, really strong on that. So I think it's very important then that coaches and parents and athletes themselves um, interpret youth results correctly. So oftentimes we see highly successful young athletes being the result of, of say a maturational advantage um many people might be familiar with um with relative age effects at this stage so again some people born early in the year um have an advantage because they've just grown a little bit more and what can often happen is that that initial difference can get picked on by coaches by parents who then give a little extra practice and the, the small initial difference grows and grows and grows um but eventually it dissipates and so when it Coming back to, to Anya McNamara, who you mentioned, um, and I think that, you know, the, the, what we can develop for everybody are the things that will last, the things that will help you to get to get better. And whether getting better is playing for your, your club team or whether it's playing for your county team or whether it's an Irish representation, um, whatever your definition of, of getting better is, we can equip people with the skills to practice better uh, Anya describes psychological characteristics of developing excellence, and it's a bit of a mouthful, but PCDEs is something that I think should be should be uh, foundational knowledge for all coaches in terms of what are you trying to develop with young people. The psychological characteristics of developing excellence that can apply not just to your sporting life, but can, if it's encouraged, also apply to their schoolwork, also apply to their learning how to drive and to other aspects of their life as well. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a really important point. You know, we, we shouldn't get caught up on, on youth success because it, it doesn't mean anything. And so what we should instead concentrate on is the, the broader development 
of young people. And I think, that, again, if you're looking for a specific framework to help you with that, then, then Anya's uh, psychological characteristics of developing excellence that she's done a lot of work on, that, that idea came from, from somewhere else originally. Um, but there's a great template. Have a look at those and think, okay, within every one of my sessions, what little activities am I going to include that will enhance one of these characteristics? Um, and again, this comes down to what you said earlier about planning and questioning. Um, how can you how can you layer in an extra aspect of development into your session? Yes, it's mostly going to be focused on maybe endurance running if you're an endurance coach and, and or in an endurance sport. It's mostly about their, their physical fitness. But how can you layer in through a question, through an activity, through a problem? How can you layer in the development of one of these psychological characteristics that will stand to the athletes, whether they make it in sport or not? Yeah, again and again, I just like the way you've 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 teased that out now to be a really practical output for somebody listening, right? So you've talked already about the observation skills and and the questioning, and the preparation that you should maybe put into those bef- in uh, before your training session. And now, if you can start looking at well, how can we prepare them to be that 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 to, to get over that little bit of adversity, uh, and planning that into your session again, it just shows the importance of that preparation before you go into a training session, or whether it be with an individual or, or a team sport. I mean, you're also the other thing is you know you're, you're going to watch this, and you're going to look out for because again, if you've been thinking about you know whether it's the the PCDEs as, as a very much psychological approach. Or even if you take Sport Ireland, I really like their um, their their C's model. So competence, confidence, connection, character. You know, how do you develop those aspects in your athletes? And you can just be watching and be mindful for opportunities to step in and develop those. So I'll give you a really specific example. Um, I was doing some hurdle drills with some really uh, really temperamental, fragile hurdles. So if you tip them, they could fall apart. And so there's about six athletes and they were working both sides of the hurdles and they were doing the hurdle drill up, walking around and going again. And one of the hurdles tipped, one of the uh, athletes tipped the hurdle, it collapsed. It was the, the one of the middle hurdles. Um, and so he bent down to try and fix it. But it's a really fiddly thing. So he's there and he's trying to fix this hurdle. And so I nudged the person beside me and I said, um, watch this. Someone is going to be the first to bend down and help this athlete put the hurdle back together. And we are going to praise the hell out of that person for the character that they're showing, because that's what it looks like. And then I watched all of these athletes complete their hurdle drills. In some cases, hurdle drilling over the athlete who's standing on the ground <laughs> trying to put this together and nobody helping. Now, uh, so then what does that tell me? It tells me that, okay, I now need to look at my plan and I need to design in an opportunity. I don't know, is it going to be talk-wise or is it going to be some other form of activity where we can, we can encourage uh, a little bit of character development because that's not what I want to see within my training group. That's not the important characteristic for me. I want to see people who are going to, who are going to step in and help. So again, uh, it kind of illustrates... Uh, there'll be lots of failures on this road 
don't worry about those. Just get experimenting and, and have a clear idea about what you want to, to develop. Yeah, and it ties in again with the observation piece, like how easy would it have been for you as a coach or, or any of us as a coach to just ignore that or just go and fix it ourselves but then not consider the consequences or potential learning opportunities that we could get out of it if, if don't if we t- if we put a little bit of thought into it and this is the thing because i think so many coaches listening to this you know again it's not rocket science they will be able to say oh i remember a time when i developed confidence in a young athlete or i developed connection with it for a shy athlete or i helped that so it's it's for me, master coaches, expert coaches um, aren't doing anything extraordinary. They're just doing the little things all the time. They recognize the opportunities to act on those and they design really good practices which generate opportunities for them to act and layer in that extra development. Yeah, and yeah, and, and that's just, I, I really like the way now that you, throughout the chat now t- today that you're after bringing everything to a practical output so that people listening they're getting the benefit of all the expertise and research that, that you have done and, and have read, but they're actually giving a practical output to it. And that's that's what we're trying to do. And I suppose that's what any coach wants. They want, how does this relate to my coaching when they're either listening to a podcast or attending a webinar or, a, or any coach education forum? Um, Phil, you've been great with your time so far. I've one more question to you, if, if you don't mind, before we go into the last little bit. Um, very briefly, I, I'm fascinated by the, the you you, talk, you you do some research around enhancing the quality of your practice and, and around attentional focus, and it's something that I'm really interested in. So could you give us a brief overview of just, I suppose, what it is and how it can help? Yeah, I will. And uh, I, I might be a little bit controversial on the way as well. Um, we love controversy we'll here, Phil. That's fine. Um, so... I think attentional focus is one of these topics which has, you know, it's it's really risen to prominence in skill acquisition over the last, I don't know, uh, it's not actually that old. 1998 is the first paper that was published on this, and and it's really kicked off in the last 10 years. And and you've got some people like like Nick Winkleman who has produced some really good resources and, and shared some really good practice around this. So uh, if somebody's looking to get into this in more depth, I definitely would recommend checking out some of some of his resources around it. Um, the basic idea is that small changes in the instructions that we give can have, I'm going to say, a, a significant impact on um, how quickly athletes learn, how well they perform, and how quickly they learn. Effectively, you've got two main types of, of focus. One is internal focus, which is where the words that you are using refer to, to some part of the body or their movement generally to a specific part of the, the body movement. And then you've got an external focus, which refers to the effect of your movement on the environment. Um, so let me try and give some examples to illustrate that. If you're talking about, um, and I'll use tennis as a, as a sport we haven't, haven't come across before. So if you're talking about a forehand stroke in tennis, you might refer to, okay, what I want you to do with your wrist or what I want you to do with your arm, how big the movement you make with your arm is. So it's very much body specific. Whereas if you're talking about the effect of your your movement, you're giving people instructions that relate to, to say, the racket and the movement the racket is making. So, you know, for a, a forearm, you might talk about draw a big C with your racket. And for the, the backhand, you might talk about, can you draw uh, a backwards Nike symbol? 
with your with your racket. So you're you're talking about how the racket moves, not about how the body moves. Now you might be listening to this and thinking, well, that's not much of a difference. You know, that's that's a tiny change in the instruction. How can that possibly make a make a difference? Um, and if you are thinking that, then you're in the exact same position that I was uh, in about 2010, I suppose. And I thought I've got to investigate this for myself because. You know, I, I can't believe that such a small difference genuinely makes uh, has an impact on learning. Um, so I did some research in a, a kind of a pretty standard, you know, golf putting in a lab type experiment. But I learned an awful lot about focus of attention within there. Um, and again, I came out convinced that you know there is a genuine effect here. Um, I have I've I've looked at the research. I've tried it out. I've experimented with it myself. Um, I think you have to be very good at how you deliver the instructions and how you influence what the athlete is thinking about to make it work. But I do believe it can it can make a difference. So so that's the, the kind of basic point as to um, you know what what do we mean by attentional focus instructions? It's getting the athlete to think about not their movement directly, but the effect their movement has. And doing so seems to help the athletes to perform in a more automatic way and to perform and to learn faster. Um, I guess where I'm going to be a bit controversial is I'm going to say that focus of attention has become one of the big topics in skill acquisition. And I don't know if it's the one that gives you the most bang for your buck. I think that, and I would think this because skill acquisition is my specialist area, but I think there are a huge number of tools in skill acquisition that have the potential to transform someone's practice. Um, and when I say transform, I don't mean major changes. I mean uh, small benefits. But when you're having small benefit in every practice session, it adds up. And so I think that skill acquisition is, or sorry, focus of attention for me is the ideal gateway drug. If it attracts people to skill acquisition, fantastic. But there are better tools, there are more powerful tools that can make a really big difference to your practice once you get into to skill acquisition more. So anybody who's, who's found focus of attention and finds it's interesting and useful, um, that's great. But you're only getting started with your skill acquisition journey. And um, there's, there's a lot more benefits that you can find to enhance the quality of every individual's practice. And that makes a big difference over time. And I think we might have to uh, have another full episode on uh, what other things in skill acquisition give you more bang for your book. But I'm very conscious of time, Phil. Uh, you've been brilliant so far. Um, we ask everyone who comes on the show three questions to finish off. So uh, some of the stuff you'll cover, you will have covered already, but feel free to summarize again. Um, so first one's up. What does the term successful coach mean to you? Fundamentally... Um, it's someone who makes a difference and that difference is not necessarily in somebody's sport it might be in some other aspects of someone's life um, and it might not even be directly so I'm, I'm going to reference back um, two coaches Damien McLaughlin and Big Jer who, who were coaches with Clownalower Athletics Club in Tralee which doesn't exist anymore but um, these were two coaches who's very present, who's very taking of sessions, um, it created a space where, where I could develop as a young person and I owe them a huge debt as a, as a result of that. And so I think successful coaches are those who, often without knowing it, 
make an impact on people. And that impact, as I say, is, is not just within sport. So I think that's what, uh, that's what I, would, I would emphasize around success in coaching. And then for any coach who is listening to this and saying, okay, well, okay, what's the impact that I want to make on somebody? And then take a careful look at your planning, take a careful look at your coaching. How is it that I'm making that impact that I want? Yeah, and I, I just, yeah, it, that's powerful. And I love the way that you just talked about making a difference. It doesn't have to be on the pitch or on the track or on the court. It just could be anywhere in life. And I think uh, sometimes the, the power of coaching gets um, undervalued. I've spoken about it before, but uh, a coach can really transform someone's life uh, if, if done in, in the right manner. Um, best book, podcast or resource that you would recommend for our coaches listening? So this uh, this was a really nasty question to ask because <laughs> I've got a lot of books, um, and I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about you know what are the books, not just the books that I've read, but the books that I've gone back to and read again and read again and found other books around that. Um, and I'm trying to think about something that might be of interest to, to coaches who are who are working with with developing adolescents because that's my my primary interest, um, and although it's it's very much comes from an American context and is based on that, I would thoroughly recommend people to check out Joe Ehrman's Inside Out Coaching. So there's a, a series of books. Uh, again, I read the first one, and then I bought the other two straight away as a result. Um, one of them is Joe Ehrman's Inside Out Coaching, and then there's another one which is uh, called Season of Change, which is by a coach who read Joe Ehrman's book and then um, changed his, his coaching as a result. Um, Again, it's, it's very much an American context, but I think there's a huge number of lessons that, that anyone can take from those books. And, and that's what I look for in a coaching book, something that I'm going to read again. And every time I read it, I'll take new lessons from it. And, and Inside Out Coaching definitely delivered that. Excellent. And we'll put up uh, links to that up on the page uh, so people will be able to find a, a link to it. And last question, your top tips for a developing coach. Okay, so... I guess I'll start with with find a friend, um, because you know everything in this in this world is easier if we do it in company, um, and I think over the course of, of lockdown we found how how potentially easy it is to, to reach out to people and to, to keep connected with people. Um, so I think uh, number one would be certainly to to develop but develop in company, find somebody to take them uh, along the road with you. Um, and the second point I'm going to say is to is to explore. Don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to explore. Stuff will go wrong. Uh, stuff has gone horribly wrong for me in, in multiple uh, coaching sessions. That's not the important bit. The important bit is the, the learning that comes from that. And if you're constantly willing to experiment, um, you'll be astonished by how quickly you will see see developments in your coaching practice. I think that's a fantastic way to leave it. Um, Phil, thanks so much for coming on. Um, just, uh, I'm conscious we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you run a master's in applied sports coaching in UL. Do you want to maybe want to give us a, a brief synopsis on where people can find out more information? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you just Google the, the master's in applied sports coaching at the University of Limerick, uh, you'll find some information about us. It is designed for experienced coaches who are looking to examine their coaching practice. 
Um, we've got a, a tagline, which is your coaching is the curriculum. And we try and stay very faithful to that. So you will come along, you will join a community, which is your peers. It is the staff members. Um, it's from a range of different sports. So we have uh, I think 11 different sports represented on the first cohort going through. Um, an average of 15 years experience. So you can just imagine the, the knowledge, the practices, the ideas that are inside in that room. Um, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to be involved in sparking those conversations and trying to, to structure them so that we end up with coaches who are making more of a difference with the, the athletes that they work with. Um, so it's the Masters in Applied Sports Coaching at the University of Limerick. Uh, if you Google or, or Twitter, you've got a hashtag uh, MSC Applied Sports Coaching UL, which is slightly long, but you'll, you'll find some more information there. Um, or anybody can, can reach out and drop me an email and I'll, I'll pass on some information about it. Brilliant, Phil. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll stick the link up on the page as well. Um, listen, I can't thank you enough for giving up so much of your time. I, I, I honestly, God, could spend another hour chatting to you, Phil. And I, I'm not joking about getting you back to go maybe through more uh, skill acquisition stuff again. But there's so much there today that, that people can take from it, like right from the start in terms of the, the use of questioning and, and, and what's your goal in the question that you're asking, what your outcome wants to be and, and how that relates into... Uh, the thought you put into your preparation for our sessions and as well as that the, the observational uh, requirements and what you want to see and how you want to um, address those issues any issues you see um, I love the point you make about don't be afraid to explore to experiment in your coaching maybe sometimes people are a little bit staying inside their comfort zone but that real learning happens when you push the boundary and a big one for me I, I just love the way you kept referring to your coach's toolkit as in you have your observation your questioning etc and loads of things and i think if people think of it that way it's a really easy way to to keep putting extra tools in and keep adding layers on so whether that be questioning the observation the adding in the psychological stuff i think that's a really just a really useful way to, for people to be able to think of it and uh, and making an attainable goal as well so phil thanks a million for coming on thank you for listening to the show we hope you can take something from it that will help with your own coaching journey. As always, you can listen or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And you can find us on all social media channels, at Bubble Coaching on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please get in touch because we would love to hear from you. The show was produced by Niall Williams and brought to you by the Coach Education Department of the Camogie Association. Thanks again for listening. Till next time, bye.